Father, thank you that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us. The just for the unjust. To take away our sins once and for all and forever. That we can sing this morning of forgiveness of all our sins and a restored relationship with our Creator. I pray for anyone who's here who doesn't know that assurance, is not sure of where they stand with you, God Almighty, that even today uh, you would call them to yourself and work in their hearts so that they embrace the truth of Christ and his shed blood and his resurrection. Father, thank you for your great and precious promises. Thank you that you promised to complete the work that you began in us. Thank you that um, you give us assurances of your presence with us in our lives, no matter what kind of days we're having. Lord, you are faithful and true. We can trust in you at all times because you're an everlasting rock. Lord, as we open your word together, I pray you would draw near to us, that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our text for today was written during a time of deep distress. But before it's over, the author is not only making some progress himself, he is encouraging others as well. Romans 15.4 reminds us that whatever was written in earlier times, including this psalm, was written for our instruction so that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 130 as we continue our study of summer psalms. Psalm 130. We'll start with needing God's mercy. Verse 1 and 2. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications, or if you have ESV, my pleas for mercy. So God's mercy is his tender compassion and inclination to help those in misery and distress. And the psalmist is saying, I'm someone in great misery. I'm someone in deep distress. I'm in the depths. It feels like I've been thrown into deep water and I'm desperately trying to keep from drowning. A couple other psalms use that kind of word picture for overwhelming troubles. Go to Psalm 69, verse 1 and 2. Psalm 69, the first two verses. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there's no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood overflows me. Or Psalm 88. If you want to turn over to that psalm. Psalm 88. Verse 1. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul has had enough 
troubles. Have you ever felt like that? <laughs> this is enough, Lord, isn't it? And then look at verse 6 and 7. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Well, we don't know the exact troubles that the psalmist is dealing with in Psalm 130, but that's actually helpful because it means we can plug in our own situation into this psalm, knowing it applies to being in the depths of affliction or the depths of discouragement or the depths of sorrow, the depths of guilt, whatever we're going through. There's something for us. For example, here's an email from John and Carrie Dinette from a few years ago. These have been days of groaning and weariness. We have been facing numerous challenges and disappointments. There have been conflicts with colleagues. There have been significant waves of stress. There have been banking and electricity and water problems. And there has been a general heaviness in the past weeks that remains to be lifted. They don't use the exact phrase, but you could say, they're in the depths. And most of us have experienced those kinds of feelings. Groaning, weariness, challenges, disappointments, conflicts, stress, heaviness. We've been there. Maybe you're there this morning. And so out of the depths of distress, the psalmist cries out to God for his mercy. So back in 130, I've cried to you, O Lord. I hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. So he prays in humble dependence on God as the only one who can relieve his great misery. So we looked at Psalm 69 about being in deep waters. Later in that psalm, David prays like this, 13 through 17 of Psalm 69. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Or there's Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore let us come with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's where we go in time of need. That's where we go when we have mercy. We go to the throne of grace, which we sang this morning, before the throne of God above. Here's Matthew Henry on this passage. In these verses, we are taught whatever condition we are in, though it be ever so deplorable, which means sad or miserable, to continue calling upon God. The best men may sometimes be in the depths in great trouble and affliction, and utterly at a loss what to do. In the depths of distress and almost in the depths of despair, the spirit low and dark, sinking and drooping, 
cast down and disquieted. But in the greatest depths, it is our privilege that we may cry unto God and be heard. A prayer may reach the heights of heaven even out of the depths of the greatest trouble we can be in in this world. So isn't that encouraging? No matter how bad things are, no matter deep this thing is, God can hear you. You remember Corey Tenboom, the survivor of the concentration camp? There's no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. So as the psalmist prays, he's very aware of the fact that he doesn't deserve the help that he needs. Look at verse 3 in Psalm 130. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, if God should deal with me according to strict justice, if he marked down every single time I sinned in thought, word, or deed, if he kept a going record of all the times I failed to do what he's called me to do, I'm in big trouble. And so is every other person in the world. If my prayers were dependent on my performance, there's no way I could ever expect them to be answered. We see something similar in Psalm 143, in the first two verses. Psalm 143. Verse 1, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications, answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness, and do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. So there's this awareness. I'm coming, but I don't come as someone with like credit on my account, like, God, you owe me one here. I come as a humble sinner. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, wasn't exaggerating when he called himself a wretch. In his own words, he said, quote, My life was one of continual godlessness and profanity. I do not know that I ever met a man with a mouth more vile than my own. Not only did I sin, I got others to sin with me. And then John Enzer writes this about something that got John Newton's attention. On March 9th, 1748, Newton was in the midst of a violent storm at sea. Gigantic waves pounded and thrashed his ship, the Greyhound. One side of the ship was so battered and the water was rushing in so fast that men despaired of their lives. All hands were preparing to die, including Newton. He was 23 years old. And then he quotes the biography of Newton. Newton turned to look at the flooded area of the ship which he had been pumping. If that won't do, he said... The Lord have mercy on us. Suddenly, for the first time in years, his blasphemous words seemed to bite back at him. What mercy do I deserve, he thought. The answer seemed painfully obvious. It's not just true of John Newton, is it? (laughs) What mercy do I deserve? None of us deserve the help we need. None of us are entitled to the relief we pray for. We have no right to expect, let alone demand, that God would grant us our request as if he owes it to us. Well, the psalmist shifts from needing God's mercy to remembering God's mercy. Verse 3, back in Psalm 
130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. That's good news. The holy God, the righteous judge, is willing and able to release us from our sins and not hold them against us. There's forgiveness with him. And here's some other texts that declare that good news. Psalm 86, verse 5. Psalm 86, verse 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. So God isn't hesitant to forgive. You don't have to twist his arm to forgive. He's ready to forgive. Or Nehemiah chapter 9 Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 16 and 17. Nehemiah 9, 16. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn, would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. And one more for now, Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity, and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love or mercy. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So there's forgiveness with God. Great, ready, abundant forgiveness. Did you notice the intended response to God's forgiveness? There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We might have thought it would say that you may be thanked. And that would be a very appropriate response. We'd be thanking God forever for his forgiveness. Or we might have thought that you would be loved. And that's true too. Jesus said in Luke 7, he has been forgiven much Loves much, and all of us have been forgiven much, not little, so love would be appropriate. But he says that you may be feared, that we would have a deep sense of reverence and awe before him. We saw that back in the spring in First Peter, if you want to remind yourself in First Peter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why? Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Or as John Newton put it, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear 
and grace my fears relieved. So there's this humbling, sobering effect of grasping that none of us deserve the forgiveness we need. There's a holy fear that comes when we recognize nothing less than the blood of Christ could take away our sin. We deserve to be punished for our sins, but instead we're pardoned. We are guilty, but instead we are shown mercy. The psalmist continues talking about remembering God's mercy in verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness or mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So with the Lord is loving kindness or steadfast love or mercy, and there's also abundant, plentiful redemption. We already sang a song that used the word of redemption and redeem. It means to deliver or release or set free. Sometimes in the Old Testament it refers to God's deliverance of his people from their slavery in Egypt. But here in verse 8 it's saying the Lord will redeem Israel, that is his people, from all his iniquities. He'll set us free from all our sins. And that redemption was to be accomplished by Jesus. Go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. The last part of verse 13 says, Our great God and Savior Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So, Jesus Christ himself gave himself to redeem us, to set us free. Or Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. In him, Jesus, we have redemption, deliverance, release through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So before we keep going, we just need to stop and say, have you ever experienced God's forgiveness of your sins? And if God is convicting you this morning, acknowledge, I need God's forgiveness. I'm guilty of doing what's wrong in God's sight and failing to do what's right in God's sight. I, I don't stand in a good place. And... Ecclesiastes 7.20 says that's all of us. It says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Second, turn away from being content with sin and turn away from trying to do something to earn God's forgiveness. Titus 3.5 says he saved us or rescued us not because of works done by us, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So it's not about something we do, something we work for or earn. It's a gift of God's mercy. And so we trust in Christ alone to forgive our sins and restore us to God. 
believe that his death on the cross is the only payment God will accept for sin. I believe his resurrection from the dead shows that God did accept that payment as paid in full and sufficient for all who believe in Jesus. Peter says this in Acts 10.43, Of him, referring to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Well, in addition to talking about needing God's mercy and remembering God's mercy, the psalmist also talks about waiting for God's mercy. Look at verse 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. The word wait and hope are the same word in the Old Testament. They're interchangeable. Um, they're both right. And they both are the idea of expecting help from God and waiting patiently on him until he acts on our behalf. So here's a definition from Dale Ralph Davis. Waiting is an expression of personal inability to bring about any progress in the situation and an expression of God's ability to hear and help. To look and wait for God means one is both desperate and expectant, for it means I believe only God can help, but also that God will help. The time is not immediate. One must wait, but God will take care of this at some point in the future. So think of the Danette's email. There has been a heaviness in past weeks that remains to be lifted. So it's been going on for weeks. I'd be ready for heaviness to be gone. How about you? Or in our lives, it might be not a heaviness, but a sickness or a heartache or a relationship that remains to be fully healed. It's not happening yet. It's still waiting. Waiting for God's help. And it's been a while already. And here's this call to wait, which is hard. Nobody's going to say, that's no big deal. It is hard. So here's three observations from verse 5 and 6. One, he says, my soul waits for the Lord. Not waiting for a change in circumstances, but looking to him and trusting he will do what is best at the right time. So there's battle number one, right? Because we all would like a certain scenario to end a certain way by a certain time. And that's what we're hoping and that's what we're waiting for. And sometimes that's different than waiting on the Lord and his timing, right? Maybe you've heard the definition of patience. Patience is accepting a difficult situation from God without giving him a deadline to remove it. And by that definition, most of us are impatient. At least I am. So hoping in God, not just circumstances. Second, I hope in his word, which means I don't put my hope in something God never promised. For example, a pain-free, problem-free life. I put my confidence in the promises of God in his word. For example, God doesn't promise to heal us of every physical illness. 
He does not remove every thorn in the flesh. But he does promise, like he promised Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. That's something you can hope in. You can put your confidence, your full weight of your confidence on that, because that's God's word. And not just a, a wish that you want to happen. Or, the Lord does not promise we will be exempt from difficult and painful circumstances. But he does promise to be with them in them and keep them from ultimately harming us. So remember back last spring in Isaiah 43. My dear wife Angela read this to me just this week because I needed to hear this. Isaiah 43. Verse 1 and 2. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Not if you go, because you will. But when that happens, if you're mine, you belong to God, I'll be there with you, and I'll be helping you and sustaining you and keeping you, and you will get through it. That's a promise you can hope in. Not hoping that you'll be exempt from anything like fire and water. And third, I wait for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. So there's two parts to that comparison. One, watchmen look forward to the morning. Um, if you're a guard working the night shift or a mother staying up with a sick child throughout the night, you look forward to the night being over. There's an expectancy of looking forward to it. And two, no matter how long the night seems, morning always comes. Right? <laughs> Since the first day of creation, there was evening and there was morning, first day, till the new heavens and the new earth, when there's no more sun because God and the Lamb are the light of the new heavens and new earth, God promises there's going to be sunrise. And so, the psalmist is saying, I'm even more confident that the Lord will come through for me with the right kind of help at the right time than the watchmen are sure that the sun's going to rise tomorrow. So that's the kind of faith we want to have, isn't it? So the psalmist isn't out of the woods yet. He's still waiting. There's no happy ending at the end of the psalm yet. It's like, oh, and God came through and everything's cool now. The end. He's still waiting. But he's making progress, isn't he? He's making some good progress from being in the depths to consciously saying, I'm putting my hope and confidence in God to come through for me. Still waiting for him to do it, but I'm, that's where my hope is. And then he turns to us, his readers, and says, O Israel, in other words, God's covenant people, that's, you're among them this morning, hope in the Lord. Which is no small trick if you've 
in the depths and you're distressed and you're waiting for God to do something, it's hard to get past thinking about yourself and thinking about somebody else, isn't it? But here he's gone, okay, it's not just me here that needs to wait on the Lord. I'm going to encourage God's people to hope in the Lord as well. So he's encouraging us, especially if we're in the depths, not to give up in despair, but to keep hoping in God. And there's three other psalms that end like that. And so the ones probably on the same page you're already on, the end of Psalm 131, verse 3. O Israel, O God's people, hope in the Lord. When? From this time forth and forever. So if you haven't been, starting Sunday morning at 11.15 till forever, put your hope in God. Or Psalm 27, 13 and 14. Psalm 27, 13 and 14. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So that's his testimony. I had a choice of despairing or believing I'll see God's goodness. Those are the two choices. And then he talks to us. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And then turn over to Psalm 31, verse 24. The last verse of that psalm says, Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we need that. We need our hearts to be strengthened. We need our faith to grow stronger, to be able to put our hope in you and wait on you for whatever it is that we've been praying about that's taken longer than we thought. Lord, I just pray that uh, you would strengthen your people. Lord, we're unworthy of the least of all your mercies, as Jacob said. We can't demand it. We can't say we deserve it. We are totally dependent on your grace and mercy. We just acknowledge that. It's up to you, Lord, how and when you will answer our prayers. I pray again for anyone who doesn't know Jesus this morning, that they would see their need for a Savior that can forgive all their sins and bring them to you, and that you would work in their hearts so that they gladly, freely come to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.